0: Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax audit and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. And Sanoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries
1: showing almost no signs of slowing the robust nature of commercial real estate and development is fairly pervasive across most regions and communities right here in the carolinas welcome again to the most widely watched source of carolina business policy and public affairs i am chris william and thank you for supporting this dialogue all of these years on this program experts in the field so to speak from conceptual planning to funding to out-of-the-ground development we will take a close and good look and discuss the current state of commercial real estate and development.
0: Stay with us, please. Gratefully acknowledging support by Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at southcarolinablues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches and children's services. Bearings, a leading global asset management firm dedicated to meeting the evolving investment and capital needs of its clients. Learn more at Bearings.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, a commercial real estate panel discussion, featuring Andy Andrews IV from Dominion Realty Partners, Peter Pappas of Pappas Properties, Don Williams from Medalist Capital, and David C. Lockwood III of Cautier's International. Hello, welcome to our
1: program, uh, Commercial Real Estate and Development. Gentlemen, welcome, Happy New Year. I don't Happy think it's new, new year, is new year. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. Um, Andy, we'll start with you. What, so here we are, beginning of 2019, have had quite a run already in the economy. I mean, by many measures, if we make it to June, we're gonna have the longest economic expansion in at least contemporary U.S. history. Um, give us a sense of where you think commercial real estate and development is.
2: Commercial being, I'm going to go first for the office side of things. I think uh, as a whole in the Virginia, the Carolinas, both from our perspective, mm-hmm. there hasn't been a lot of office development, especially in the Triangle. Charlotte, they've done more in uptown than they've done in the surrounding areas. but. Areas like Richmond, Virginia, there's been no new development of office. So there's, believe it or not, there's so much growth going on with these tech firms and companies moving here that there's a lack of space. And so we, even though the growth's been there and the economic buildup's been there, we haven't seen the development boom, turn into a bust like everybody kind of thought it would. From our perspective, we're still doing speculative office buildings in the triangle getting ready to break ground on one in Charlotte, we feel the growth is still very vibrant down here in Mm -hmm. the South. So we're positive about it. It's nowhere near what it was like in the 80s when everybody was just Mm -hmm. building without any reason to build. It's much more managed with the debt. The debt's not out there just lending every day. And so we've got to be
3: smarter. So that's
1: really what's happened. Uh, Peter, what do you think? How do you come down on that? Well, you
3: have a lot of discipline in the financial markets. And I think that's been you know, a governor on speculative development, but to Andy's point, the growth in the Carolinas, the job growth, the immigration, you know, a pro-business environment that we're all operating in continues to attract jobs, and and I think you look at the commercial markets and the office space, there hasn't been a lot of new office development. Most of what's been done has been value-add, office buildings improved, updated, so it's time in this cycle to see more office development to meet the job growth.
4: David? Yeah, and, and, but part of that process, we have been absorbing space over the last five to seven years, but we're absorbing space where companies are giving up space. They're operating a lot more efficiently. All of the banks have been giving up space. Everybody is putting more people in less space today. So we are absorbing all of that space, and we're just now getting to that cycle where it's time to develop new office space because all of that space has been absorbed.
1: So as, a, hold on just one second, as the finance <clears> guy, Don, <throat> you heard developers and property managers, sorry, David, I'm, I, I know it's, you're greater than that, but, but you, you know, you've heard the point of view from the guys that'll turn shovels and, and get projects going. But as the finance guy, do you have any uh, a, a different point of view on this?
5: Well, Andy and Peter both use the word discipline, I believe, this late in the cycle, in my 30 years in this business, I've never seen so much discipline continued only really? uh, from the lender side both in the short term construction lenders as well as long term lenders.
1: Is there anything out there on the finance side? So there, is, the, is, this, is the calculus, is the metric of the money that goes into these projects different than it was 15, 20 years ago?
5: <laughs> in 2007, right before we went into the big recession, uh, I think developers could get 90 to maybe even 100% of cost and money was flowing very rapidly to every deal that mm-hmm. was there. Uh, today, it's uh, they've been really good and they've kept it at 65-70% of cost, and uh, and they just won't do every deal. Um, it's There's a lot more discipline, and it's, it, it's made the market much more healthy and, and helped prolong the cycle.
1: Andy, I interrupted you. Were you going to say something about that?
5: To the point of absorption, you know, the numbers are compelling,
2: just to what you said. <laughs> Raleigh, two years ago, net absorbed 2 million feet, so did Charlotte this year in 18 excuse me last year in 18 we will net absorb 2 million feet what that means is all the space is being absorbed and on a relative basis we're at a five percent vacancy factor in some of these class a buildings five percent is not healthy you need ten percent because you can't attract out-of-town tenants a company that says they want to move from the north to move to north carolina They want to go into a building that's already built, most likely. So they can make that transition quickly. If they have to wait for you to build it, it's three years from the time they announce to the time you build it and they can move in. And by then they've lost all their employees. It's not as smooth Mm -hmm. of a transaction. So we've, to everybody here, we need some more speculative office, but it's only happening in Raleigh and Charlotte. It's not happening in
3: Greensboro, Winston-Salem, other cities where they're building speculative. You, you, don't, yeah.
1: see, you don't see that, Peter? You don't you know, see that?
3: Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say, the other trend that's really been interesting is where the office users are going, so you look at Charlotte, and Andy can speak to Raleigh, but I mean, Dimensional Fund Advisors committing to a large building in South End, uh, new in Charlotte. S- in Charlotte yeah. you know. the north camp project you know on the other side of downtown as you head down the the light rail line you know you're seeing small blocks of space 60-80 thousand feet being committed to in what are really redevelopment areas so i think that's another factor that's been you know helpful to the growth in the charlotte market is to see areas like south end become an office environment and really start to uh, have some class a new product you know it's 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 easy to to to
0: pick
1: on Charlotte and Raleigh and just look at the cranes that are popping up but David I mean don't you find that maybe on a smaller scale but still is robust this this the low country that, that Charleston you know they've got they're going to be got water on one side they can't go that way and Greenville aren't these both the same type of situations where they've got that kind of pent up demand
4: Charleston's phenomenal Charleston actually has a lot of office space smaller office space under construction and in Charleston last week I'm talking to developers and brokers and they're saying what's under construction is not enough to keep up with the demand for the businesses moving into Charleston Charleston's on the map everyone wants to have an office there if you're in the United States you just want to have an office in Charleston the insurance the technology growth in Charleston is phenomenal so that market is unique to itself now they're not building large scale projects Mm -hmm but there are a number of projects down on the peninsula that are under construction right now.
1: When you look at the heat map, Don, when you look at, as it's already been described mm-hmm. here, those places in the Carolinas that are doing well, is there anything else that pops up to you that you go, yeah, but don't forget about X or Y or Z?
5: Well, to talk about Charleston, I would add that 15 years ago, institutional investors and lenders didn't really buy into Charleston. It was, a very, it was considered right. a tertiary market and we, we had trouble bringing capital there. Kind of a novelty. T- yeah, it's totally yeah. changed. And, and just the Peter reference, the job growth in the Carolinas, uh, in all our markets is, is really robust. And so that's just driving a lot of institutional attention and uh, it makes it really healthy um, from a supply and demand
1: of capital and getting the product there. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not necessarily pessimistic, but you know, we've seen this movie before and <laughs> we know how some of this growth ends mm-hmm. up. Andy, I I don't argue with you, make a good point about that, but there's something driving this growth. (laughs) So how do you all, as you kind of look forward, how do you model out five, 10, 15 years to make sure that when the music stops, you end up having a chair? The music did stop
2: in 07, 08, everybody might have a differencing of opinion on what year it did, but we were all part of it, those at this table, so we've experienced it. I think we have a better understanding of the shortcomings of being a little, today, being a little bit more prudent in what we build at the end of a cycle. And so for us, example, as far as Dominion's concerned, we're not going out there and and building 450 units just everywhere we find a site. We're a little bit more particular on our size of scale of projects and a little bit more particular on our locations. Uh, just to make sure that they can weather a downturn if it comes, mm-hmm. and when it is going to come, you know. We, I heard something the other day. We're in the eighth inning of a 33-inning game. <laughs> you know, realistically speaking, I think you know it has slowed down uh, from 16 and 17. I think 18 slowed. And I think 19 is gonna be even slower. So it's, it's good for those of us that are in the business because it's harder for others to get things out of the ground. So the competition's not as mm-hmm. crazy. And so we, we actually, a little small correction's pretty healthy. The one we had, we
3: could all do without another right. one of those. I think Peter, you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I think that the other thing that's been interesting is you know, early in this cycle, and we're active in the housing space, under our Twilliger yeah. Pappas uh, company. has been very busy, 20 projects in the last yeah. six years. We've been very active in the suburban markets because you had, early in the cycle, you had a real push to the infill. And it, it was interesting when you step back and look at it, there were no barriers to the infill. The barriers in the market have been in the suburban locations, high demographic suburban locations that are, have amenities, have retail restaurants and are, you know, somewhat walkable. It's been uh, really where there's been a lot of opportunity in the last two to three years.
1: Well, the suburban markets, and this is a question for <coughs> please feel jump in here. Will the suburban market end up being the ultimate destination for the millennial? Even though everyone is talking about apartment homes and city centers and, and high density, et cetera, et cetera. Well, will they end up? They will. This very large part demographic, larger than the baby boomers. Will they end up doing what their predecessors have done and move out into the suburbs?
3: When they have to have more space, they're going to move.
1: Isn't it kind? Of, I mean, I, Peter. So the oldest, oldest millennials uh-huh. are early thirties. Isn't mm-hmm. it? Isn't it starting to happen?
3: It's starting to happen. But I, you know, I think again, you have to define the suburban markets. Suburban with place is a term we use a lot at our company. And I think when you have services, retail, grocery stores, Mm -hmm. restaurants, the attraction of having a community that's walkable and you're not necessarily having to leave that area and drive everywhere to enjoy those services makes that type of location attractive really to everybody to every demographic. So it's more of a town center critical mass? More of a town center critical mass, that's a good way to phrase it. The
1: definition
4: of suburban I think is is, is, is changing. Right. And suburban is not just moving out to the country and having clear-cutting all the land and having houses. It is a community, it's a town center, it's a village, it is a walkable area. And eventually, I think the millennials will begin to move to that to those areas for more space, but it's going to look and feel a lot more like the urban areas where they're coming from. Right.
5: Do you think about Baxter and Charlotte, mm-hmm. you think about Baxter and Waverly and yeah, that's, these are villages, these are communities, this, it's different than mm-hmm. suburb, suburbs 20 years ago. Chris. Don't, let's not
2: forget something. The baby boomers that you mentioned in the suburbia, they're actually they're empty nesters. They're retiring. They're moving out of their houses, at, at great numbers, and moving into the urban centers and renting. So you think there's a swap? Well, we know so it's a swap there's because swap. we follow them all the time. It's not just millennials leasing or buying condos in urban areas. It's all people. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the percentages it might be. millennials, but the other 50% is people coming from the suburbs and wanting to live a different life and not wanting to have the house to take care of. So I think that has changed and is going to continue to change because the baby boomers my age, hard to say that, but my age and above are actually <laughs> trying to simplify. It is hard to, say, that or is say, hard to that. say, I just turned <laughs> 60. And so it's, it's uh, I think they're really trying to simplify their lives and live something different than what they always have.
1: You know I, know, I know as you all plan and you're all thoughtful gentlemen, you try to control as many things as you can before you announce a project or go forward. So this idea of, of, of this larger global idea of land planning and even more importantly, transportation planning, uh, Peter, I look at you and I think you, 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 you had some DNA in North Carolina's Department of Transportation, so I know this is near and dear to your heart, but how do you think about when you do a project, whether it's urban, suburban, or town center, wh- what is important, how do you plug into a DOT plan or, or some type of local or statewide transportation plan? What's, what's, how, how do you do that? What's important, how is it working now, et cetera, et cetera?
3: Well the good news is the dialogue's different. We're talking about the connectivity between transportation and land use planning as where when I got in the business in 84 it was like they were two separate silos. Now at least the discussion's saying how do we integrate those two together? Uh, Whether it's an urban area or a suburban area you see more of a push for buildings to be up on the street, Mm -hmm. for there to be more of a walkable environment and that takes a lot of coordination with you know the transportation side of the equation because there there is an inherent conflict in moving traffic and necessarily creating a walkable environment but the discussion is a lot better now because I think people are saying we're really trying to create a comprehensive plan we're not trying to look at it separately
1: you know I think a Christie Hall DOT uh, uh, secretary in Mm -hmm. South Carolina and also Jim Trogdon in North North Carolina, Carolina and they both sat right here on this set and said we are very interested in uh, DOT or what we can do as part of a, a community plan. Uh, David, you get the sense that I'm not asking you to throw them under the bus, but is DOT, whether it's in Columbia or Greenville or Charleston, do you feel like DOT is sympathetic to what uh, goes on on the private side of the balance sheet when it comes to developing communities.
4: Sympathetic, yes, but, but there's probably not enough dialogue taking place, especially in the smaller markets. I think when you are forced to do it in Charlotte or Raleigh, much bigger markets where that infrastructure is so vitally <clears throat> important, I think the dialogue, we force the dialogue there, it has to take place. The smaller markets in the Carolinas, I don't think that dialogue is there yet uh, because it's not out of necessity. Uh, The two, all the different parties are talking, but they're just not talking to each other yet.
1: And why are you smiling over there when we were talking No, He's he's exactly
2: right. I think, you know, we just happen to be on the cutting edge in Raleigh and Charlotte. We are the recipients of a lot of communication and teamwork to get the infrastructure in place. Look at the light rail. Oh, my gosh. You know, if all the other cities had stepped up and done that, they, too, would have the growth expansion along one designated corridor, which alleviates all the congestion in other areas. So it's a super... Super idea. It just hasn't trickled down
3: to these smaller well, communities. Well, Chris, you might remember when the light rail discussion was going on, the the whole focus on getting density on that corridor, because we said, you know, if you this if is it, the south end, the south south, end south corridor, corridor, you know, if you make that investment in light rail, you've got to have the corresponding dense land use to support it, and I think that's worked very well for Charlotte. Mm-hmm. So it it really those two things do fit. Uh, together mm-hmm. and and the discussion needs to be had at the same time.
1: Yeah, Don I want to bring you into this because you, you know when you think about the idea of developing and financing the development how, and you stand right there between uh, uh, trying to find uh, responsible good stewardship of investors dollars in projects and you think about well it's got to be developed around some type of corridor transportation corridor But that's a utility cost. That's not necessarily going to have an ROI. So, I I guess, how do you drive the discussion around some of your partners who are doing projects and you can use the leverage of financing to get something like, oh, let me just throw it out there, affordable housing or something that might not be just a, uh, you know, a return on investment. How do you drive that?
5: Well, the lending community really is generally very simple. So they're they're not going to want the complexity and they don't want to get in the conversation as much as these guys do every day. Um, so the lending community really wants the simpler deal and not to have to deal with uh, the, it's, uh, the enhanced cost because of all the infrastructure that's put in, all the mixed use, the affordable housing component, if it's mixed in and co- running cost up, they're going to still look at the raw economics and require a high level of equity. And it makes it tougher on these guys simply because they're being creative, trying to create the best living spaces and workspaces in our communities. And the lenders generally don't wanna take that yeah. risk. So they're bearing the, the heavy part so how, of that so risk. So then
1: how do you bear that that responsibility, Andy, I'll call it, to say, I'm gonna do a project and it's going to have a return, a return on investment. We're going to, you're gonna do that the right way. So where do you come down in affordable housing? How do you either be a leader or say, yeah, that's probably not our bailiwick?
2: Well, interestingly enough, a lot of the communities of the municipalities are are driving that for us in their own way. We just did an apartment community in Charlottesville, Virginia, and we had a 15% affordable housing component of our 200-unit apartment complex.
1: But that was driven by the public sector.
2: We worked with Charlottesville to create their first one. So we created the document to do it it's in place for 10 years. Now, when we went to sell it, the buyers that that looked at buying the asset actually looked at that as a great component that they could use as marketing, say we're investing in affordable housing. And then, you know, it is only there for 10 years. So, uh, Mm -hmm. but I think it is an important aspect. We've got to do our job. It's the same thing as why we do green. It's just the right thing to do. We just can't overbear the project. You can't go in and think you're gonna do 50% affordable housing at these construction costs. And like Don said, the infrastructure costs that go along with these projects and make them pencil. And at the end of the day, if they don't pencil, the lenders are not gonna loan us the money and the equity is gonna
4: go someplace else. So it's all it, it's all got to tie to your point. The ROI's gotta be there. Yeah, David, go ahead. Char- Charleston is really faced with a problem right now because as land development continues down on the peninsula and you do have some lower income areas in Charleston and those areas are being taken for development and, and moving those residents out. And Charleston's looking at how do you legislate? How do you mandate that if you're taking low-income housing out for development, how do you replace that with affordable housing so that you don't lose your workforce? Particularly in the hospitality industry in Charleston, where you don't wanna push the workers so far out that they're gonna be busted in. They need to have the workers in affordable housing living right downtown.
1: You know, in a fairly provincial market like Charleston that has traditionally said no to a whole lot of change, you know, Mayor Riley was able to, to spearhead a lot of that. How, how does that dialogue happen now? How, how you know, what Charleston says, yeah, probably not here. Maybe in North Charleston, maybe out on Daniel Island. Are they having some success figuring out what that balance is in, in, inside?
4: I don't think they're having success yet. I think they're doing a lot of talking about it because they're worried about the future, which is what most cities who are going through very rapid development, what they're faced with, they're looking 20 and 30 years out. And and, the, and I think they're doing the right thing by doing that. It goes back to the to the DOT planning. We need to be having a lot more of those conversations in all of our markets in the Carolinas for careful planning so that we don't do it haphazardly. Um, You go back to the DOT issue. We talk about what's going on in Charlotte and what's going on in Raleigh. We probably need to have a lot more conversations about what's going on throughout North and South Carolina and how you tie all of the markets together with light rail or some type of transit system mm-hmm. other than just our highway system.
1: Yeah, and a final word on this, Peter, we only have about three minutes left, but I want to get you weight in on this because I know you've had dialogues about affordable housing in your area of dominant influence. What is important to get right when it comes to affordable housing?
3: How you fill the gap is the number one issue. <clears throat> There's no lack of interest in the industry in trying to help meet the need for workforce or affordable housing. But we've got to have a program that provides a gap financing piece to make it pencil I mean the, we can't pay 100 dollars a foot for land you know construction costs or right. moving especially in the uh bricks and sticks side and then try to figure out how where the gap's going to come from we need a program that provides that gap financing which you know tax abatement would really be the way to do it and to be scalable
1: is there a appetite among public policy leadership to drive a, a tax type of underwriting for that?
3: Hard to say whether there's an appetite yet because I'm not sure that we have articulated that need enough in the state legislature. I think if people understood that it's, it's not, it's not that Andy or I don't wanna build that in our projects, we simply can't, the, the process won't let us conceive a project mm-hmm and then wait nine months to go through another process to get a subsidy to fill that gap. So I think if we could explain it very simplistically to those in Raleigh and and explain it in the sense that this is a problem all of North Carolina and South Carolina will face. It's not specific to Charlotte or to Raleigh. I mean, the truth is the workforce housing issue in this country, it's all over this country. It's kind of the silent issue that a lot of people don't speak to. And one of the things that we're facing as a nation is the fact that the federal government has reduced the tools and the subsidies available to fill these gaps. So I think it's up to the state and the local areas to think about what is that one tool that we could have that would allow us to have a scalable program. Because it's gotta be scalable. Mm -hmm. As much as it's great to say we did five units or 10 units That's not really the answer. The answer is how do we, as we build 300 units, Mm -hmm. it's almost automatic that we put some percentage of workforce housing in there. We're doing it in Atlanta because they've got a program and, and it makes it really easier to do indicator okay. because you've got a set program but it has in to be place.
1: Driv- But it has to be driven by public Look. policy leadership. We're, we're out of time guys. Sorry. And no, no, no. Thank you very much. Uh, Don, good to have you on the program. Thank Welcome. you very much. Good to be Peter, here. Peter, always nice to see you. Nice, nice to see you. See you. Andy, congratulations nice. on a nice bunch too. of good stuff and da- David, good to see you as good well. Good to
0: see you. Till next week. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by The Duke Endowment. Bearings Grant Thornton, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Promotional consideration provided by Business North Carolina Magazine. For more information, visit carolinabusinessreview.com.